MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufchuk, and welcome to season three of the show. We've got a lot of goodies in store for you this season, but before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has reached out through the production of this podcast. Season one, season two, I've gotten a lot of good feedback, and I really enjoy hearing from you all. So if you have been in touch or you want to get in touch, or if you have a topic in mind that you want us to cover, um, please just reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter at mdnotified1 and by email at mdnotifiedpeds at gmail.com. And without further ado, this episode is going to be covering newborn screening. We are here with Dr. Weiss Happel, who is a pediatrics medical genetics fellow. So thank you, Dr. Weiss Happel, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Newborn screening is super important for not only just the general pediatrician and, of course, the pediatrics geneticist, but also I think this is a topic that touches everyone within pediatrics, whether you are in the community, whether you're a hospitalist, whether you're a subspecialist, everyone kind of is in some way, shape, or form coming into contact with these results. And so for that reason, it's it's really, really useful to kind of have an understanding of how this works, how the testing works, and then what are the next steps in terms of if you get an abnormal result. Newborn screening, of course, consists of three things, the hearing screen before discharge from the newborn nursery, the congenital cyanotic heart disease screen, and then also blood testing. In this episode, we'll mostly be focusing on the blood testing component, um, which is what I traditionally think of as like the quote-unquote newborn screen. Mm -hmm. Some people also call it the state metabolic screen. Some old school doctors still call it PKU. Yes, some old school doctors call it PKU, which is very old school because as we will kind of talk about later, that's only one disease, not the whole screen. And now actually in the state of Georgia, the hearing screen and the CCHD will be at the bottom of your screening. So even if you don't get the records from the hospital that the baby was born at, you still know exactly like, oh, they passed their hearing screen and they passed their heart screen. So it is helpful when you're giving a consult to someone like me. Yeah. So you kind of have that extra piece of information. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting to talk a little bit about like the background of newborn screening because the field of genetics is so new and it's growing so exponentially. And I think that we've really been able to see that manifested kind of in the way that the newborn screen has come to be. Right. Mm -hmm. So the newborn screening program sort of started in the United (laughs) States in the 1960s with screening for PKU, which is probably why people who were training during that time, or maybe a little bit after that time... Still call it the PKU. Still call it the PKU. (laughs) Um, And as time has gone on, we've been able to do more and more genetic tests on the same amount of, really small amount of blood that we get from these infants. So there is a subset of disorders that is recommended for each state to screen for. But outside of that, it's pretty state-to-state dependent, right? Yeah, um, like we'll talk about later on that we in Georgia actually just are starting up our Pompeii screening, but states like Illinois have had it for multiple years, actually since the pretty close near the beginning of the newborn screening process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you mentioned, we right now we're recording, we're in the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Most of the diseases that we will kind of cover are, I think, diseases that most states include on their panel. But you may hear of one that is a little unique, maybe to our state, that you may not have in your state. 
and vice versa. So we screen for right around like 30 different metabolic diseases, all in a couple drops of blood. Which is pretty impressive. So impressive. One thing that I think is really important to kind of talk about before we go into the specific testing is the timing of the newborn screen. What does the timing of the newborn screen look like? You should wait until at least 24 hours just because the word metabolic is one of the key components. So when babies are first born, they're just trying to figure out how their system works. And so if you get the testing prematurely, you'll either get false positives or false negatives that aren't really helpful. Um, And so you'll go down kind of a rabbit hole where if you wait after the 24 hour mark, you'll get more meaningful information. There are some tests that you should get kind of when the babies are fasting, which we'll talk about later on. But really the main thing is the 24 hour mark, especially, you know, for if you're concerned about hypothyroidism or the thyroid or really honestly anything in this test, everything is always after the 24 hour mark. Mm -hmm. A lot of these markers take either 24 hours to build up to critical levels in the blood Mm -hmm. or they require 24 hours to reach kind of like a steady state where you could even initiate testing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think that 24-hour mark is pretty important, especially since now, I mean, you think about the environment that we're in in the pandemic and COVID, people are really trying to admit and discharge babies and mothers from the mother-baby unit very quickly, and um, this is definitely not something that we want to cut corners on because it can have a pretty significant amount of morbidity associated with a false positive on a newborn screen, both kind of psychologically and kind of from a additional testing standpoint. So let's just go through kind of the specific tests. Again, these are the ones that we cover in the state of Georgia. Galactosemia, this is, I feel like, a crowd favorite, right? Because in Georgia, it's hot here, and that can lead to some issues. Yeah, so this always happens like July, August here, where we'll have not an importing, but a decent amount of false positives just with this... um, galactosemia, we measure the GALT enzyme, which is um, temperature sensitive. And so in the summer, if you have a great pediatrician, they're like, I think this is a false positive, but what are our next steps? That's great. But sometimes um, with a new trainee, like we all were at one point, they freak out. They're like, oh my gosh, my baby has galactosemia. What do I do? Um, The answer is calm down. It's okay. Always check how your baby's eating. If they're eating well, and they're not losing weight and they're tolerating their feeds, usually a lot of our metabolic markers are fine. We still have to check them to verify, but um, especially in the state of Georgia, galactosemia is one of those things that is always a false, is not always a false positive, but there's always the risk of a false positive. And you were just telling me like this past 4th of July, you had like a whole crop of, you know, testing like over the holiday weekend may have been sitting there Mm -hmm. and the enzyme itself, the activity decreases in the heat and the humidity And so you may get a false positive because that level is falsely low. Mm -hmm. One thing that I learned kind of in researching for this episode that I didn't know prior to this was also if you use a purple top tube. So let's say you're in a tertiary care center or somewhere and you're drawing blood for an infant who is, let's say, like not, not doing as well or needs labs drawn for whatever reason. And you're like, oh, this would be great. I'll just use this blood to do to fill out the newborn screen, right? Because you have to mm-hmm. aim your drops of blood pretty carefully. You know, on the card, there's a little circle, and you have to mm-hmm. get your blood in that circle. I could totally see how it would be easy for the nurse or who, for whoever is collecting it yeah. to kind of get the blood out of the tube 
Um, but if you're getting your blood for your newborn screen out of a purple top, that can also decrease the activity of that enzyme and therefore give you kind of a false positive. So always make sure you're getting that blood straight from the baby. Um, biotinidase deficiency is another one that we screen for. I feel like this is a little bit more rare. I don't know. Do you get a lot of calls about this particular one? Yeah, I, I don't. A lot of the other ones are way more common, um, but it is still one that we check for. Yeah. Um, and then congenital hypothyroidism. That's another, of course, disease that we check for in the newborn screen. I think it's important to know when we're talking about these newborn screens, like what are we actually measuring? Like, what is the blood test being run? And for that, it's actually a TSH and a T4, just mm-hmm. like normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once again, I think this one is super important. So there's actually a really good article in the AFP that kind of talks about the guidelines, um, especially in the newborn period, for the appropriate levels for the thyroid, just because babies are kind of off for the first few days on what their um, thyroid levels should be until they normalize. But once again, the 24-hour mark is super important for testing those with either hypo or hyperthyroidism just so you get a decent value. The unfortunate part is if you have a preemie baby, Regardless of whether you wait for the 24-hour mark, you can have abnormal values. If the mom has hyper or hypothyroidism and she's on any medications, that can also affect the baby as well. It's, it is a really tricky test. I know here in Georgia, um, you actually call the endocrinologist on call and not the geneticist on call, but we'd be happy to field your calls regardless. Yeah, it is kind of difficult. I think as we'll see as we talk about a lot of these diseases further, the premature infants present such a diagnostic dilemma because they are so immature in every sense of the word. Their lungs, their livers, their kidneys, that also applies to their hypothalamic pituitary axis. Like they just don't mount the same TSH and T4 response that you would expect in a term healthy infant. And so I've definitely seen that we we have lots of false positives on the thyroid screen um, in the premature infant, but definitely not something to be ignored. As we know, this is a screening test. We don't necessarily get really worried un- until we have some confirmatory testing. Along that same vein, congenital adrenal hyperplasia is another one that we, we test for on the newborn screen. The cutoff value for this test is set pretty low so that there's pretty few infants that are missed, which makes sense, right? This is a pretty devastating disorder. We definitely want to identify it early. Mm -hmm. Um, But that does mean, of course, if you set your cutoff value fairly low, that you're going to have a higher rate of false positives. So if you have false positives in the CAH screening, oftentimes that's because of early collection Um, just because those natural levels of that hormone are higher immediately after birth, and then also stress at birth and prematurity. Again, endocrine, those systems in those premature infants and in those critically ill infants, they may just not be right up to par the way that they are in in otherwise healthy term kids. It seems like also, um, usually with female infants, you can kind of tell based on the physical where they have ambiguous genitalia. But it is harder to tell in males, so it's really important, especially if you're trying to check in in your male patients whether they have um, the congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And then hemoglobinopathies. Hemoglobin electrophoresis is always included in our Georgia newborn screen. 
One thing I wanted to mention about the hemoglobinopathies, I think that's probably a little bit too in-depth of a topic to discuss on this episode, but as far as false positives go, we do see, particularly in the NICU and in critically ill infants, anyone who's had a blood transfusion, that baby will have a higher level of adult hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes back, it'll say, you know, that the infant will have both fetal and adult hemoglobin the proportions of the two are slightly out of whack. Um, and that may just be, you know, your tip off that you may need to do a little bit of figuring out if, if they've had a transfusion in the past, which would explain that quote unquote false positive. What about cystic fibrosis? Once again, this is all a screening tool. Um, Cystic fibrosis, there's a lot of genes that contribute to it. So it is a, a tricky screening where only 10% of the people that are screened positive for cystic fibrosis actually have cystic fibrosis. So it is really important that if you do have concerns, still follow up with your um, the pulmonologist or geneticist if that's who your state goes through. But also tread lightly when you're talking with a family just because there is such a high risk of false positivity. Mm -hmm. But it also is, I'd almost rather have the risk of having false positivity and catch that 10% that have cystic fibrosis just because it is such a devastating disease state and you do need to be on treatment right away. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So those babies in the, in the newborn time period, they may present with difficulty with stooling, mm -hmm. um, prolonged time period prior to passing their first stool, failure to thrive, things like that. So if you get a, a, a positive cystic fibrosis screen and your infant has one of those findings, you may be a little bit more worried than if your baby is eating, stooling, fine, mm -hmm. um, because there are there is such a high rate of false positives. That's I actually did not know that either before I was, you know, kind of looking into this prior to this episode. I think that's kind of a staggering number, right? Like 90% of infants who screen positive for cystic yeah. fibrosis go on to have negative diagnostic testing. One thing, though, that I did want to mention as far as cystic fibrosis, when you actually do the screening for cystic fibrosis on the newborn screen, you're screening for levels of IRT, which is immunoreactive trypsinogen, which is a protein made in the pancreas. So an interesting fact about um, cystic fibrosis screening is if you get a little bit of meconium or the baby's first stool on the card, um, because, you know, that is an enzyme that's included and in, made yeah. in the pancreas and, of course, then subsequently excreted in the stool, that could be a reason why you would have a false positive. So if anybody is out there who is listening who is responsible for collecting a newborn screen, just make sure you don't get any poop on it because that could cause some problems. And then of course we have like the tried and true inborn errors of metabolism. This is where we really get a lot of bang for our buck, right? Because we get to send the acyl carnitine profile and the amino acid profile and screen for inborn errors of metabolism. Yeah. So I really like the next two because a lot of the times we have um, nice treatments for it. And so it's really important because you'll have babies that are failure to thrive and you don't know why they're not gaining weight, even if they're premature. And then once you figure out that they have um, one of these fatty acid oxidation issues or an organic um, acidemia like we talked about with IVA, 
you can put them on a treatment or a dietary regimen and they are magically better. Um, and it actually prevents them from getting the long-term effects of cognitive delays or developmental delays. And so you can really change a baby or a person's life. So I guess talking about the acylcarnitine profile, let's talk a little bit about that. Like how does that flag for fatty acid oxidation disorders? Yeah. So when we get them back, they're a little more in depth than what they look like when they come to you guys, just because we break them down by the various carbon chains. So your small chain fatty acids are carbons all the way up to six. So C6 is where your fat, where your small chain ends. And so medium chains are C6 to C12. And then everything after that is very long chain. Depending on where we notice that there's a buildup, then we can tell where there might be a problem, like an underlying problem. There are certain, um, like C numbers that have multiple like associated issues. And so at that point, then we'd, we'd get what's called molecular testing. So usually after we have a flag of the acylcarnitine profile, there are next steps to make sure that we have the right underlying metabolic condition before we treat. It's interesting. It is. And I guess if you have someone who has a fatty acid oxidation disorder, or you suspect that you're going to put them on formula or on feeds that are low in mm-hmm. whatever it is that that than that, that that is, right? Yeah. So low in fatty acids or low in short-chain fatty acids or medium-chain or this or that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really tricky because a lot of the kids, like, we get called on in the NICU, they're on TPN or PPN or something that isn't enteral feeds, and so that's when it really plays a role. And so we come back into play when you transition from TPN to enteral feeds. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot. We play with the NICU a lot more than, um, I think, a lot People of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, PPN and TPN, just as a reminder, is total parenteral nutrition and partial parenteral nutrition. So basically what that means is we, in the NICU, we give these babies like a banana bag and it's full of vitamins, minerals, amino acids, fats, um, zinc, a bunch of different things to help the baby grow when the baby can't actually eat through their stomach and through their native GI tract. And so, of course, if you're injecting an infant with a constant stream of amino acids, that, of course, is going to alter their blood levels of amino acids, and that, in turn, could give them a high level of that amino acid, which would give you a false positive newborn screen. This is something that we deal with. I feel like in the NICU, it's almost like the bane of my existence (laughs) because you get so many false positives. Um... But, I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the game, right? We can't not screen these kids just because they can't eat. So amino acid profiles, a little different from the acylcarnitine profile in the sense that it is screening for amino acid metabolism deficiencies. Yes. So um, this is where PKU resides. And so this is like the OG of the testing. I think a lot of money is held in the amino acid profile. Um, unfortunately, it's also one of the ones that if your baby is not fasted, this testing means nothing for us. So this is the one that, this one and the acyl carnitine profile is the ones that baby should be fasted um, just so we can get the best input. Because even if you test an adult and they ate a steak sandwich or anything, they your amino acids would be all over the place. So this one is like very important that you know what the baby's eating 
And when you call for a consult, say, this baby is on TPN, so they're not fasted. This is what the amino acid profile shows us. What are your thoughts? And that gives us a lot of insight because then we can always chalk talk with the, um, the nutritionist on call be like, what's, what's your TPN fortified with? Because some babies are on various levels of um, different amino acids in their TPN. Yeah, and yeah. so that could be why certain things are off. Gotcha. Um, and another thing is IL can throw off your triglycerides and everything with, um, the, with, the, fatty acid. with the fatty acids thing. And IL is intralipid, which we also give babies when they're in the NICU yeah. as a source of fat so they don't get fatty acid deficient. Um, so moving on from those tried and true genetic disorders, we also test for some immunodeficiencies, namely SCID. That one is kind of interesting too, right? Because we get to test for Trep, which is actually kind of like junk DNA that is a byproduct of your T cells going through that natural maturation process. Um, so that's kind of the actual metabolite that you're testing for. And of course, if it's low then you're worried that this baby might have skid. This is another one that has a fair amount of false positives. There are a lot of ways to make it a false positive. Um, And it's tricky because a lot of times we get a call about a baby that's otherwise doing well, and they're like eight months, very low suspicion, but we always have to chase it because it's such a big deal if your baby actually would truly have skid. Yeah. Skid, I don't know if I mentioned, is severe combined immunodeficiency. This is another one where we see, just like you said, a lot of false positives in premature infants. Premature infants can have transient failure of their T-cell production, and so on their testing, it can look like they don't have T-cell production, aka they might have skid, but in reality, they're just premature, and everything about their body is slowly catching up, Mm -hmm. and the likelihood is that you will just run the test again at a later date, and then it will be fine. This is also true for people who have other sources of T-cell issues, um, like people who have DeGeorge. Um, as you might remember, DeGeorge is a T-cell disorder. And so if you lack that kind of, if you don't have a thymus and you don't have T-cell maturation going on, then you might screen positive. I think other T-cell disorders account for about 30% of non-skid positives. So it is something to kind of keep in the back of your mind if you have a child who you know, screens positive for skid, but doesn't actually have skid, they could have something else like DeGeorge. Another one that we test for on the Georgia newborn screen is SMA. Um, That stands for spinal muscular atrophy. And I think it's interesting because this is a disorder that was traditionally kind of untreatable uh, and had a very poor prognosis. I don't know if we kind of touched on this before, but the whole purpose of the newborn screen is really to identify individuals who have severe illnesses that would benefit from early intervention. So getting kids who have inborn errors of metabolism onto the correct formula, getting kids who have cystic fibrosis onto treatment, getting kids who have like a hemoglobinopathy into the office of a hematologist, those are all things that could have a really profound impact on the course of a child's life. And so it's very, very beneficial to identify those disorders early and have early interventions. Um, Spinal muscular atrophy is traditionally a fairly devastating disease state, and so it wouldn't really fall into this kind of category because the availability of an intervention is not really there. Um, But in 2016, we came out with a new treatment for SMA called Nucinersen, and um, for that reason, SMA is now kind of included in our newborn screen panel. 
Um, and this is actually a genetic test on the newborn screen. It screens for mutations in the SMN1 gene. Moving on from SMA, but kind of along the same line, is X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy, which is also included in the Georgia newborn screen. And this is another one that was traditionally associated with a very, very poor prognosis um, and still is. However, it's been recognized that early intervention and, again, identification and close monitoring of these individuals can have a profound impact on their outcome. So these are individuals, mostly boys, uh, because this is, again, an X-linked disorder, who have difficulty with processing of very long-chain fatty acids. And because they can't process those very long-chain fatty acids, they just build up in the nervous system. And these kids, when left untreated, typically present in like the early school age, um, anywhere from usually four years old to 10 years old with progressive neurologic changes and neurologic decline. And so what we found is that early identification of these individuals allows us to follow them clinically very closely, uh, do serial MRIs of their brain, and then some individuals who do show early changes before they become symptomatic may be candidates for bone marrow transplant. And so the availability of something that we can actually do and intervene on allows it to be a really, really good test to do on our newborn screen. And then I know, you know, every state is a little different, but for the state of Georgia, which is our state, you know, we have some pretty exciting new screening tools coming through the pipeline. What are those screening tests? So the ones that I am aware of at the moment are we started our pilot for Pompe disease and also Crab A disease. Both of them are important to screen for, especially at Pompe. Um, if you think of the one that like, it's basically the kids that end up with liver enlargement and the enlargement of the heart. And so a lot of those, both Crab A and Pompe, you can put them on enzyme replacement therapies. And so it's really important for us to know if these children have this kind of disease, because then we can intervene early and then they can, you know, not have the effects on the heart or the liver and or um, a lot of it is preventing them from having kind of the cognitive cognitive delays and early um, death. Well, that's amazing. I'm excited that that is kind of in the pipeline. So, so kind of to wrap up, just to kind of recap some of the most high yield false positives, definitely if you live in a warm state, the galactosemia, um, testing for the GALT enzyme, that's a false positive that we see every single year. Um, testing for things like cystic fibrosis is another one where, again, this is a screening test. A lot of the... Um, initial positives will go on to become a negative. Um, and of course, our population of infants who are in the NICU, whether they're term kids who are critically ill or premature kids, a lot of those um, patients are at high risk for, for false positives just because they're critically ill, they're premature, and they may be on um, total parenteral or at least partial parenteral nutrition that can kind of affect some of their testing results. So thank you, Dr. Weissapple, for joining us. This was really great, um, and I think we learned a lot. Again, this is MD Notified, and we will see you next week.
Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.